Colossians chapter 1. This, of course, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century in Colossae. We'll read uh, verses 15 through 20, I think. So, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his own blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God. Let's just pray a blessing. Father, we thank you for these very beautiful scriptures, very insightful scriptures. We thank you that they were inspired, as Paul wrote them, by the Holy Spirit. And we are therefore dependent upon the same Spirit to aid us, to help us tonight in our understanding. Also, we pray that the Spirit might Speak to our hearts through these familiar verses, Lord. But speak afresh. Speak in a new way. Might we glimpse afresh this Jesus of whom the Apostle Paul writes. And glimpse him in such a way that our perspectives might be radically changed. We might see things not so much as those seeing with the naked eye that which is dying around us, but see with the eye of faith that which is being renewed day by day, the inner person. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some commentators suggest that these verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1 were originally a Christian hymn. A hymn perhaps written by the Apostle Paul or perhaps written by an anonymous hymn writer from within the confines of the early church. But nevertheless, a Christian hymn. 
Paul decided to weave this hymn into this letter to the Colossians. And I, for one, am so glad that he did. For whilst scholars continue to hypothesize over what they call Pauline hymnology, I am overwhelmed by the sheer richness of this passage. What a glimpse it gives us of Christ. Paul tells us firstly that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We live in an image conscious age, do we not? I know this because I have brought up two daughters and I have come to understand that image is everything. After years of observing the so-called millennial generation, it seems to me that what is really important is not who you really are, but what you project. <laughs> We're familiar with the words spin and spin doctoring, aren't we? It isn't the reality that counts, it seems to me, it is how you spin the reality. Confucianism teaches that there are three important elements to a person. There is the person you think you are. There is the person others think you are. And finally, there is the person you really are. But image and reality are not the same, it seems to me, in these early years of the 21st century in the free West. The further what we are is from what we project, the more likely, I believe, we will have psychological problems. And that, this is perhaps at the heart of many issues today. So much of our time and effort and energy is being spent on projecting and subsequently therefore protecting an image which in point of fact is a facade. Is it any wonder that perhaps psychological issues, mental difficulties are, are on the increase? We are in so many ways in this country of ours, like actors playing roles, projecting images, hiding behind masks. Now then, having said that, is this what Paul means when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Is Jesus merely a projection of God, but not the reality? Does Jesus give us an idea of God, of what God is like, but not the real thing? Well, this isn't, thankfully, what the Apostle is endeavouring to convey in any way, shape or form here. Rather, the idea of image here 
is one of exactness, one of representation, one of revelation, if you like, one of manifestation. In the ancient world, for those who enjoy reading the classics, if you made an image of yourself, it was viewed as a part of you, as almost you. Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is not different from God. He is the exact reputation of God. He is the exact image of God. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 talks about the Son as the perfect image of God. The exact representation of his being. Therefore what God is. We see in the Son. That's why Christ of course. Spoke to his disciples. And said do you want to know the Father? Well he says. If you have seen me. You have seen the Father. The implication is. If you know me. You know the Father. Why? Because he was and he remains the exact representation of the Father. There's an old saying, like Father, like Son. But the scripture wants us to understand that as far as the Godhead is concerned, it is like Son, like Father. And so, Whilst it's a little mind-blowing, if we want to understand God, who God is, what God is like, if we want to understand something of his characteristics, something of his personality, then all we need to do is get to know Jesus, his Son. Because he is the exact representation of the Father. Now, of course, we are mature brethren here, aren't we? We know how to get to know Jesus, don't we? We have the Holy Scriptures. And we can spend hours, days, weeks, months in the Holy Scriptures that, of course, reveal to us the Son. And consequently, therefore, the Father. We have the Holy Spirit who was sent by Christ Himself subsequent to His glorious exaltation. So this is the picture Paul is attempting to present here. What the Father is, so is the Son. And therefore, friends, in Jesus, we don't meet someone who can merely introduce us to the ultimate God. In Jesus, we actually meet God. In a sense, with a human face. Because he came in the flesh. Incarnate, fully God, yet fully man. It's a mystery, I recognize that. A mystery we won't fully comprehend this sign of glory, but it is what it is. <laughs> in Jesus we meet God 
in our shape and size, so to speak. In John chapter 1 verse 18, it's put like this. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so the writer in John says, but God, the one and only, who is the Father's side, is referring to Jesus, of course. Because he is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I love this expression in the Greek, made known. Literally translated in our English, exegeted. Now, we theologians like that word, don't we? The exegesis. Well, this is where we get it from. It's derived from, from original New Testament Greek. Here in this expression, has made him known. Jesus has exegeted the Father. In biblical studies, exegesis is the art of explaining. The art of drawing out. The art of revealing what a passage says. So when the preacher presents an exegesis of the text, he is endeavouring to, to unveil the text to those who hear. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, putting into scripture what isn't there. But Jesus, says the writer, has exegeted God. I love that. He has revealed the Father. He has explained the Father to us. Wow! Isn't that something? Do you want to know what God is like, friends, tonight? Don't pretend you don't, because I know you do. Then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't need to go to do three or four years of of undergraduate theological study. That will just confuse you. Just look to Jesus. In his precious word, we have the wonderful Gospels. How rich they are. Because they speak of Jesus. Of who he was. Where he came from. What he came to. They speak of Jesus, the kind of person he was as he lived, even as a child, submitting to his father and his mother. They speak of Jesus, who when he entered into his ministry, subsequent to his baptism, lived and, and, and breathed amongst the disciples, teaching them in the things of God. They speak of Jesus, the heart of Christ. For those who are lost and dying. He looked upon Jerusalem and, and cried, Oh, Jerusalem! He wants to know the Father, heart of God for the lost. Just read of Jesus. Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Wow, what a mystery. What a wonder. What a privilege. To know God, to understand the Almighty by looking to Jesus. Wow. Paul goes on to talk about Jesus in verse 15b as the firstborn. Now then, taken out of context, this 
Pauline expression, the firstborn over all creation, has admittedly led some folk to deduce that Jesus, therefore, is a created being. My dear friends, might I very lovingly warn you away from such teaching. These folk think that God's first creative act was to make the person we now know as Jesus. But friends, this is a grave error of interpretation and leads to heresy. And there are many under the banner, inverted commas, of Christianity who will teach this, quote the scripture. Um, So be very careful. Remember that the enemy, Satan himself, can often come as an angel of light, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Notice, friends, the Bible does not say that Jesus is the first created over all creation. The word is firstborn. Now, firstborn is one of those Old Testament words, expressions, motifs, if you like. It's loaded with Old Testament meaning. I could keep you here all night on an Old Testament study. I won't. For instance, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God spoke about his people Israel, the holy nation, as God's firstborn. Now, they certainly were not the first created nation. They were God's firstborn nation. In Psalm 89, verse 27, for instance, the Davidic king, the one who was coming, was going to come, is called God's firstborn, and we could go on. If you want to study in that, it's worth it's worth the discipline. So, what does it mean to be firstborn? Well, my friends, it is to do with rank and status. It is to do with priority. It was a word that had increasingly little to do with birth at all, but rather the idea of being an heir. H-E-I-R. <coughs> The Greeks had two words for first created. And so if the Apostle Paul wanted to say that Jesus was the first created being, he was a scholar, of course, of a number of languages. Greek would have been one of them. He could quite easily have said just that. No, 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 no. Paul knew what he was writing, and he says that Jesus is the first born. He's referring to the one who is an heir, if you like. Of the Father. He's speaking about priority and rank and status. And therefore, the inference is, as I understand it, just as the uncreated Father stands above, before, above and beyond all of his creation, so equally does the uncreated Son stand in the same position. Jesus stands as the Father stands before, above and beyond all of the creation. It's important. I'm aware that these ideas run counter to a lot of present day thinking. The fact that creation itself isn't an extension of deity contradicts what is now, I suppose, 
called New Age Thinking. Pantheism, sadly, is infecting our culture in all manner of ways. Remember that uh, pop song, sung by M People, that suggested that we can search for the hero inside ourselves. I like the song. It's utter rubbish. The sentiment is wrong. In a very clever, subtle way, it's saying that the key to life is the hero within. If you like, the God, small g, within ourselves. This is at the heart of pantheism. It's error. It's, it's heresy. Pantheism claims that there is not a transcendent God out there, distant from its creation, but there is the God within. Beware of such error. This passage of Colossians is, is gently telling us that we are not part of God. <laughs> it reminds us that God the Creator and God's creation are distinct from each other. Though in Christ, of course, as we shall see, quite wonderfully, they are joined and intertwined, but they are not the same thing. Jesus is the firstborn. He is, if you like, preeminent. Just as the uncreated Father stands before, above and beyond creation, so equally does his Son, the eternal Son of God. In verse 16, Paul tells us that Jesus is the creator. Through the uncreated Son, the Father creates all things. Now, I've been trying to get my head around this ooh, for about 25 years. So if you, if you thrash this out tonight, you let me know. Because I'm just about, uh, just, just trying to get my head around it. But verse 16, let's read it. Just notice how comprehensive this creation is. Verse 16. For by him, that is by Christ, so by Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus. And, notice, for Jesus. Wow. So everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Christ, it seems, is at once both the starting point and the goal of creation. The goal and the starting point. Are you with me? It's not an either or, is it? It's a both hand. Have you ever wondered why the created universe is here at all? Well, we kind of selfishly say, well, it's here for our sakes, don't we? It's here for our sakes. Or we perhaps hypothesize on Old Testament theology and say, well, well, God was lonely. He needed company. And so he created the universe and the world and subsequently, therefore, you and I. I I'm sorry, look, friends, but that's not the case. As I understand it, the universe was created... For 
Christ. Wow. It was created by Christ for Christ. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? You see, this ancient church in Colossae was being threatened in so many ways. Contextually, they were being threatened by principalities and powers. They were being threatened by superstition and occultic practices. It was a church riddled with fear. Paul here writes deep theological thoughts, but he does so in an attempt, I believe, to reassure this church. That in spite of all the threats that they are facing, they belong to Christ. (laughs) The one who created the universe for himself. And so, belonging to this Christ, they are safe. This is the Father's world in Christ, and this is the Saviour's creation. There's a sense in which Paul is speaking deep, deep thoughts. But he does so to try and reassure a church that without question is bruised and battered in so many ways. I find that reassuring, don't you? Because I'm looking at a church. Let's be honest. And I'm not just talking about Koi Mai. A church, universal, that's bruised and battered in so many ways. How reassuring it is to know that Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, is not only the starting point of creation, but the goal. It puts everything else, including the existence of the church, including the existence of each Christian within the church, into perspective, doesn't it? In other words, it's not all about me. It's all about him. And regardless of what the world and the flesh and the devil, devil does to, to, to threaten us individually and threaten the existence of the church, God will have his way in Christ. Why? Because the world was created for him. Paul's point is, as I understand it, whatever powers there may be, visible and invisible, and incidentally, some commentators think that these powers are not just spiritual powers, but in, in our day, for instance, the power structures of society, the multinational companies, the global conglomerates, economic forces, international politics, the whole structure and fabric of the world to, 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 to contextualize it for us. Whatever powers there may be, says Paul, Christ is ultimately the Lord of them all. How Liberating that is for those of us who fret and worry about how our finances are going this month or about how our health is deteriorating in our advancing years or fret and worry about the state of our friends and family or or how our country appears to be going down the the spiritual pan, how reassuring it is to know that the creation, 
which includes all that we see visibly and all that we, we can't see, <laughs> is created by Christ, for Christ. How blinkered we would be, therefore, to even contemplate the thought that in any way, shape or form it's out of control, out of God's hands. No, my friends. This passage is saying that wherever you look in space and time, things visible, or if you could see them invisible, Jesus Christ has authority over them all because he is Lord. In this amazing universe of stars and planets, black holes and pulsars, quarks and deep space, parallel universes, whatever we can mention, imagine or discover, Jesus is before all these things, and in him and for him all these things were created. And thus there is nothing outside the majestic reign and sway of Christ. <laughs> the psalmist puts it in Psalm 46, He lifts his voice, the earth melts. And that's why he concludes, doesn't he, that wonderful psalm, not just once but twice, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He says, come and see the works of the Lord. <laughs> the desolations he has brought upon the earth. He breaks forth the seas to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And then there's this wonderful verse. Be still. Stop your fretting. Be still. Stop your manipulating. Be still. And know that I am God. Scientists for decades have been endeavouring to understand what it is that keeps our universe together. What is it? What substance what force is it that joins all those atoms? Well, they don't know. For all the academic brilliance, they don't know. How, how, how amazing it is that, that a wee scouser from Liverpool, I know. I know. What is it that keeps our universe together? Well, it's the very one who created the universe. Because Paul goes on in verse 17 to tell us that Christ holds things together. It is He that holds all those atoms and molecules together. He is the unseen force. Don't ask me to explain it, because I can't. And neither can anyone for that matter. But he just does. Because our Christ, not only is the creator of life, the beginning of all things, who himself was the uncreated God, he's not only the goal, but he is the sustainer of the whole of creation. He is what prevents the cosmos from collapsing into chaos. The Son of God, friends, is the glue of the creation. How wonderful that is. And therefore, my friends, we ought to be reassured. 
the very fact that existence is what it is is because Jesus is maintaining it. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> if he withdrew, then there would be no world, no creation. It would collapse into itself. And so the very fact that we are remaining as we are is reassuring because it means that Christ is, is sustaining what he created. Why is he doing that? Because what was created was for his sake, for his benefit, his glory. Friends, he has an invested interest in you and I. Isn't that precious? That's why he went to the cross. He has an invested interest in you and I. And therefore, understanding our need of redemption, he went to the cross to redeem us. Yes, we're beneficiaries of that redemption, but he went to the cross to redeem us because he loves us and he has an invested interest in us. Isn't that wonderful? So the sense in which by, by saving us, he is benefiting himself. Mind-boggling. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's Lord of his church. He's Lord of my life. And I rest in that wonderful reality. The test, just by way of conclusion, the test of a good theology is a doxology. It is no coincidence that the Apostle Paul, more often than not, concluded his theological exercises, his theological treaties in the in the in the epistles with a doxology. Because a doxology, of course, is, in a sense, a hymn of praise. And so, a good theology should turn our thoughts into worship. How good's your theology? A good theology should turn our thoughts into worship. And so, Whenever we gather in this manner for praise, prayer, worship, the study of God's word, ultimately we should leave such a place in praise and in worship. Caroline Maria Noel's wonderful hymn at the name of Jesus captures this theology brilliantly, doesn't it? At his voice, creation sprang at once to sight. All the angel faces, all the hosts of light, thrones and dominations, stars upon their way, all the heavenly orders in their great array. All created by him and for him. And therefore, are sustained by Him. How wonderful. Father, we thank You for these amazing scriptures. What an insight into the character and into the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, we thank You for Your Lordship. You are on the throne. 
We pray that our theology might be such that we conclude tonight with a doxology, a hymn of praise, as we marvel at the wonder of the one who was the firstborn over all creations, the creator, the sustainer of all life, for his namesake. Amen. Amen.